The information contained in this podcast is an expression of opinion and does not constitute investment advice. This is the Gold Money Foundation podcast with Dominic Frisbee, keeping you up to date with expert opinion on precious metals and the markets. Hello and welcome to the Gold Money Foundation podcast hosted in association with Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now I'm sitting today with the author of a wonderful book, Paper Money Collapse. The author is, of course, Detlev Schlichter. You're all no doubt familiar with him. Detlev, welcome to the show. I want to start off by saying, I suppose... I suppose I want to start by saying thank you and that many gold bugs, I think, owe you something in that your book, whether by design or by good luck, has kind of taken uh, the idea of gold and a gold standard and gold as an alternative currency back into the mainstream. Uh, the, you've been on the BBC a couple of times and a few people are talking about it. So so how do you think the, the, the mainstream is, is reacting to some of the accusations that you're making of about the flawed nature of our monetary system? Well, I'm, uh, I think you're right. The book was specifically written for the mainstream. Um, I, I wanted to uh, sort of uh, um, attack some of the you know, deeply held beliefs and the common wisdom uh, about money and our monetary system in the mainstream, among mainstream economists and in the financial industry in particular, where I worked before. Um, I'm not quite sure. I think it's only part of the mainstream that is really taking on to that, that, oh, that oh, issue. Yeah, I mean, I think one of my frustrations has, in fact, been that I think, I think, for example, Wall Street economists or City of London economists, many of them, I think, are still sort of ignoring some of these kind of issues. But I'm, I'm very pleased that uh, I think, uh, as you said, among uh, gold bucks, among libertarians, among people who already felt uh, or already feel that uh, you know, there are issues with our monetary system. I think the book had a very good reception. And it's interesting that you know, parts of the media have now taken on to this, uh, which, is, which is great. So I hope that the mainstream will continue to um, open up to these issues. And I think as the crisis persists, I, think that, I hope that that, that will happen. Uh, but I think parts of the mainstream have so far ignored it. Yeah, I mean, of, of course they have. But you're you're kind of the first the first man through the gates, if you like, by getting onto BBC Radio and so on. Um, one of the things that's always seemed, you know, it seemed very obvious to me. I might be wrong, but so many of the problems that we have from the the wealth divide between generations, the wealth divide between the very rich in society and the very poor, uh, this financial crisis, the fact that we've all managed to get ourselves into so much debt, uh, the fact that governments are able to print money willy-nilly, all, all these various problems, the corruption in our, in our financial sector, the, the mismanagement of money, the improper behaviour, these are all different manifestations of, of a flawed system of money. And yet, I know you've been on BBC Radio talking about gold, and yet so few people so few people have have addressed the fact that it might be our system of money that's at the root of the problem that is, that is that's absolutely correct. In a way, I think you summarized the motivation for writing the book. It's yeah. because I, I worked in financial markets for 20 years, for nearly 20 years. And one of the things that I found uh, so surprising, as you put it, is, you know, working in finance, uh, you know, you realize how the system was getting progressively more unstable. 
but people did not ask the fundamental questions. Could it have to do with the way our monetary system is organized? And what I found particularly interesting is if we look back in history and see how this system came about, we see that it was often ad hoc political decisions, you know, at, at the sort of the, in the heat of the moment, if you like, to fix uh, some immediate problem that led us away, progressively away from uh, gold. To or, print the uh, money to play for World War One, for example. Exactly, to print money from yeah, the, the classical gold standard mainly ended not because John Maynard Keynes came up with better economics. He didn't, as you know, but, but not because he convinced politicians. It, simply the first start was that Germany left the gold standard to fund for World War I. And if I look at the present fiat money system, which is very unique, our global monetary system, if you look at it from the point of view of uh, the economic historian or the monetary theoretician, it is a very unique system. It did come about finally by Richard Nixon closing the gold window in 1971, which he did because America suffered gold outflows, and he closed the gold window because he wanted to continue, you know, borrow and uh, fight the Vietnam War and, and do lots of other things. So po politicians shook, took, um, shook off the shackles sort of, 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 uh, of uh, the, the gold standard or the, uh, any sort of gold basis of the monetary system. Uh, they wanted to have more sort of uh, room to maneuver. Uh, but this was not designed by economists. But today, many mainstream economists apologize you know, for the system or explain it to us and, and present it as a superior system. Uh, and quite frankly, it is not. And I think more and more people realize this, uh, just looking at the current crisis. Uh, and I think it, I found it staggering how many mainstream economists have become defenders of the system, uh, despite its obvious flaws. Now, you know, I think we're agreed that, you know, the system is, is flawed and it should collapse. Um, but, you know, it often takes the market a long time to do what it should do. Now, you know, how long can we go on with this current system? How long before, you know, Bitcoin or some kind of global metal exchange replaces our, our uh, current system of money? By global metal exchange, I just mean, you know, you transfer ownership of some kind of metal, whether it's gold or silver or copper digitally. Right. Well, that's a, it's a tough question because uh, while I think we can clearly explain that the present system is, uh, as I call it, suboptimal, unstable, and ultimately unsustainable, so so it will end, and it will probably end badly, and it will probably end soon. Oh, you but think it, you'd really when you say soon, what? As soon as I mean, I, I, I mean, do I can't believe it's gone on this long. To be honest, that, that that that's right. It's difficult to put a time frame on because I think one of the interesting things about money is. Um, because uh, using an established medium of exchange conveys so many benefits to the, to the money user. I mean, it's that, that people keep on using a paper money, even if it's devalued, even if its inflation rises, or even if it comes with other problems. Uh, switching to a new alternative form of money is very costly, it's a very risky you know, endeavor. Uh, you need a lot of people participate in this. And, yeah. and, and it, once, once the state has managed to introduce its own paper money and make it, uh, make it the accepted medium of exchange of the entire population, it's very difficult for alternative forms of money to take the place. It's often only at the point of complete disaster, yeah. complete currency collapse. Now, when will we get something? I mean, my sense is the system now is so unstable that something big will happen over the next five years. So I always like to say the next two to five years are going to be 
you know, very, very interesting. I think we will see some major changes. Now, I say this because sometimes people read my book and think uh, that the f under analysis of the system or the problems is correct and the longer-term outlook behind it is also convincing, but sometimes people say, well, it, this may take another 20 years. I don't think we have another 20 years. So I do think the next two to five years will be very interesting. Um, one of the big factors keeping the current system afloat is, is not just the fact that everyone uses it, it's a psychological factor. You know, people still believe in money, and that's because you can buy and sell things with it. Um, but. Uh, you know, at what point, what, what's the trigger for people to lose confidence? Is it, is, is it some alternative, is it Bitcoin or something that people realise is actually better? Is that the point at which people flee a paper currency? Is it all going to happen extremely quickly? Yeah. Well, I, w I would say that uh, we use money, money is first and foremost a medium of exchange, but uh, derived from this core function there are other functions like a store of value and a way to, to a way if you like to stay on the sidelines to not commit yourself to buying bonds and stocks or buying consumption goods but stay on the sidelines and keep your purchasing power people use money for that purpose as well it's already clear that in this crisis people have already stopped using paper money to a large degree to, as, 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 as a store of value because that's the, the, the reason behind the 10-year bull market, spectacular bull market in gold, um, uh, is, is that people already use that alternative form And they use bonds and stocks as well. I mean, I don't, I don't think people necessarily buy, you know, Shell because they believe in Shell or whatever the stock is. They, they buy it because it's a more effective store of wealth than cash. That, exactly. And there, there are other assets and, you know, you can talk about arable land and forestry and, and, and uh, real estate. All of these things have become um, uh, very important for, for, for investors. But um, gold is obviously a monetary asset and I think what we've seen is already the remonetization of gold, not for the purpose of transactions, not for the purpose of buying and selling goods and services, but for the purpose of store you know, value. So, so part of that sort of frustration with fiat money is already, uh, you can already see in the action of, of market participants. Now, when will the confidence in, in paper money really break down? I think for that, I think, I think the two key points I would look at is, well, one is if inflation rises, if aggressive monetary policy leads to higher inflation rates, and then people will look at the central banks to impose higher interest rates to rebuild confidence in paper money and given the highly leveraged system that we have now and that that system is dependent on central banks supporting it it will be very difficult for central banks to raise interest rates and fight inflation so so that that's that's one concern another i think trigger point is uh, uh, a loss of confidence in the ability of sovereign states to fund themselves. Mm -hmm. As we've seen in situations like Greece and certain other countries, when the market loses confidence in government bonds and starts to sell government bonds, interest rates rise, and that's a huge threat to the entire financial system. Uh, but if the central bank's buying its own bonds... And we, again, we're already seeing the first signs of this. You know, We already see here that, that uh, even the major bond markets around the world, now the biggest owners in many cases are already the domestic central banks and the biggest marginal buyers are the central banks and i think if the, that's got if, to end badly hasn't it 
historically it has usually ended you know badly and this oh, there's was a historical precedent for central banks buying its own bonds well i think i think yeah i think this is i mean is i, I found it again interesting how mainstream economists often you know uh, uh, make excuses for, for for these policies because i think i would say 10 years ago 15 years ago most economists would have said that this is only something that's being done in certain latin american countries or it was done in weimar germany in the 1920s uh, i think 10 15 years ago people would have struggled to believe that at some stage you know the bank of england the u.s treasury would be the largest owners and the largest buyers uh, of of government bonds i have to say the the u.s fed has not bought uh, u.s treasuries really over the last 12 months but Still, the idea, the 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 trigger point here is if the public if, if central bank's buying its own debt or buying its government's own debt, you wonder why they bother taxing the people. <laughs> well, uh, but I think the people, but the, the public is already is still buying and owning these these securities as well. And I think if there is more concern about the solvency of sovereign states and people sell these bonds or demand higher yields on them. Uh, I think then the central banks would have to buy more of these bonds. So I think the problem for me is right now that the system has maneuvered itself a little bit sort of into a dead end. Uh, the system has almost checkmated itself. It's very difficult. It will be very difficult or I think almost impossible for the central banks to um, move away from these policies, to unwind these policies. So they have to continue doing what they've been doing for the last five years. And at some point, that will have to undermine the confidence of the public, either in the, the state's debt and ultimately in the state's paper money. So something has to give at some point. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, I, I apologise to listeners, by the way, for the noise. We came, uh, we're in the Groucho Club in West London, and we came into a, what we thought was a quiet corner when we got here, and it's just suddenly got very noisy. But anyway, um, yes, I mean, I wonder... You know, you know, Joe Bloggs on the street, Joe Bloggs who runs the butchers in some market town. I mean, how much does he follow who's, what central banks are doing, what governments are doing? He just, you know, runs his butcher shop and, uh, and, and runs his business. But if, I mean, but he feels, for example, if the oil price rises, he will feel that in a way that, you know, he doesn't necessarily feel what's going on in the bond market. So I wonder if the trigger could be, you know, a dramatically rising oil price, you know, sparking off inflation or, I mean, I'm not particularly bullish about oil, I'm not bearish about it either. I, I, I kind of see a period of range trending in front of us, but, but, you know, something like that could be the trigger or suddenly dramatically rising, I don't know, food costs or something. Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, but, but uh, in individual prices, people often can adjust to, you know, a certain set of prices moving, you know, if, yeah. if it's just relative prices moving, if oil prices go up, but other prices stay, uh, you know, subdued or, or, or rise at a slower pace, then people may not blame this immediately on sort of something being wrong with the monetary unit. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's more at that point uh, where... No, but they see, their, they see the, the purchasing power of their money falling on a daily basis and and that's when they start you know that's when you get the inflation mentality i've got to buy things today and not save for tomorrow exactly right and and it, i think the, the important point here is that once that kicks in or what this process accelerates that that money becomes a hot potato mm -hmm. that you think i don't i need to reduce my money balances i need to go get into something else uh, that feeds on itself because this process will immediately 
uh, uh, rise inflation further. You know, money will lose its purchasing power even faster if people lose confidence in it. So once the central bank is confronted with such a uh, phenomenon of, of it, at that moment, the central bank will have to do something drastic to stop that thing spiraling out of control. And historically, that has always meant not only hiking interest rates, but establishing very high positive real interest rates. And I think the... the Can you imagine high rates, though? It's just not going to happen. Well, that is the problem now, because central banks have maneuvered themselves, or have been maneuvered into a position where they are the backstop to the entire system, you know, to all the banks. They're still supporting certain asset classes. They are now managing the yield curve, I mean, openly via Operation Twist or quantitative easing in Britain. Uh, central banks have taken it upon themselves uh, uh, themselves to to underwrite the banking system to uh, make sure that interest rates stay low so once there are inflation concerns in the system or you know as i said before concerns about solvency the central banks will have to buy even more and they have to do that with by printing more money and that will undermine confidence in money even further so i think i think that is the real danger here and that's why i think the key criticism I have of policies like quantitative easing is not that they are inflationary right now at this very moment in time. As we all know, a lot of the money that is being produced is uh, right now stuck in the banking system or in the bond market. It's not really, you know, it's not really being used by the butcher that you m mentioned as an example, and it's, it's therefore not affecting that many prices. But uh, 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 by, by running these policies, the central banks fix prices, they keep interest rates artificially low, they manipulate asset markets, and they have to keep doing this because market forces are pointing the other direction, and central banks are stemming themselves against these market forces. And there, it will be ever but more difficult for central banks to change policy. How do you see things, uh, again, I apologise to listeners about this, there's a riot in here, um, as, uh, uh, a lot of people appear not to have seen each other for a long time. Um, how do you see things developing socially uh, as, as the monetary system unravels? Is that... Uh, you, 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 you winced when I asked you that question. Is, is that, a, in other words, you don't think they're going to develop nicely or is it not something you've thought about? No, I mean, I, I, think, I think I'm just very, very concerned about it. And, and listen, I mean, I try in my book and in my, on my blog and in my speeches, I try not to come across as a scaremonger who just, you know, I just, I, just, I hate to be, be seen and I hope I'm not seen as somebody who just wants to uh, draw attention by, by, by painting drastic yeah. scenarios. Um, but I, 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 fundamentally, I believe that the system in its present form is unstable and a painless exit right now is impossible. So there will be some pain down the road. And I'm very concerned about the social consequences because I think the problem we have today is that large parts of society have now come to look at the state as sort of the answer to all their problems. And, you know, to a very large degree now, many people are dependent on state transfers and, you know, the state health system and uh, the state pensions. And uh, I'm, I'm still a bit surprised again by how people perceive things like the crisis in Greece because I think the one conclusion I wish people would draw from this is sort of like how dangerous it is, is 
to rely on the promises of politicians. That's what you ultimately do. Now, these politicians do not create wealth. They don't create the money that they spend. They don't, uh, you know, raise the money they spend. They either borrow it and create a lot of debt, and all these governments uh, create massive amounts of debt, including Germany, which, funny enough, is now seen as sort of a model economy in, in Europe. It's a highly indebted country. Now, uh, so all these governments incur all this debt, and, and, and they're relying on, on very easy monetary conditions, and they're relying increasingly on the help from their central banks. This is a very unstable position. So when this cracks, the system. A lot of people will look to the state, they will demand their pensions, their health service. Uh, as we all know, society is aging, so a lot of people will be older and they will definitely rely on the state and they came to come to rely on the state. And the money will just not be there. So I think, uh, I'm not saying this lightly. Or it'll be there, but it won't buy you anything. Uh, exactly. Well, I think one way to get out of this is for the state to just print the money, but then it won't buy you any, any, anything real. And, and so in, in, a, in a sense, I think uh, th there will be social upheaval. It will be a massive um, uh, challenge for democracy. You think even in countries like the UK and the United States and these Absolutely. wonderful first world countries? Absolutely. I think, I think, I think perception is here very misleading. I mean, looking at Britain, it's my, it's my, it's my chosen home, right? I mean, it's my, uh, you know, I've, I've lived here for 16 years in London and I, I love the place here. I, I, you know, I, it's, it's a great place to live. Having said that, I am concerned about the future, considering that Britain is one of the most highly levered uh, societies on, on the planet. I mean, overall debt, uh, public sector debt plus private debt is more than five times GDP in Britain. And again, as I said, large parts of, of, of British society depend on on the state and another part of society depends on being able to borrow or roll over debt at very low interest rates so everything is built on you know easy money uh, and and limitless funds from the government it's it's a very dangerous situation and I think even the timid attempts by the present government to cut back on government spending you know, have not been received well by the by the by the electorate and by the public and by the media and uh, I just wonder how this will all turn out when, when money really runs out. And when Are we looking at kind of hyperinflation of the kind of Weimar, the Yugoslavia, the Argentina models? Well, what I say in my, my, my book is, well, the short answer is yes, I do think that is still a very possible option and I think it's probably the most likely option in my view. I think there are always at some stage after you have an extended period of monetary expansion you are left with two choices. Either you stop printing money, you, you, you allow the market to set interest rates again and the market will then liquidate a lot of the imbalances that you have accumulated during yeah. the monetary expansion. So that's option one. You stop printing money and allow the cleansing. That's painful, but I don't think it's quite as painful as what happens if you continue printing money, which is, I think, also the more likely outcome for political reasons. So it's not deemed politically acceptable to go through the correction. So the, the second option is to just continue to print money, but then you will have to do, keep doing it and keep, do, uh, keep ever more of this because imbalances will not be liquidated. They will just accumulate. And so you will have to print ever more money. And, and as I said before, at some stage, the public will lose confidence. Money becomes a hot potato, and then you can quickly lose control and just it spins into hyperinflation. These are the two options. And so we still have choices. Neither choice is particularly appealing. I, I always like the fact that you described that money has become a political tool, and it, it shouldn't be, and nor, it ever sh nor should it ever be. Yeah, I, I think I think that is that is that is my very very strong belief, and I think if we take one thing out of this crisis, 
I think we need to go back to a monetary system in whichever form, in which money is apolitical, in which money is, is again, a, a medium of exchange. Your money money is, is obviously essential for a working capitalist economy. Um, you know, a market economy is based on the free and voluntary and contractual cooperation of people on markets, uh, you know, using market prices, using the exchange of private property, using contracts. For that, you need a stable medium of exchange. And stability is not just defined, I think, as, as uh, you know, a central bank keeping inflation within a certain bound. It, it is really sort of that, uh, you know, money is entirely outside the political process. Um, and it also means that times you need to allow prices to drop. If the demand for money rises sharply, um, I think then, yeah, then the purchasing power of money needs to go up and we need to go through a period of deflation. Um, I think, I think, so, so I think ultimately, you know, we need to take the state out of money and banking and finance. So what I argue is what we need to go to is the separation of money and state, if you like. Did you have grandparents who lived through Weimar hyperinflation? Have they told you about it? Uh, that's that's a uh, that's a good question. Uh, no, I mean I had grandparents who lived through it. Uh, I have to say my my grandparents were born in the you know very early in the 20th century. So they were during the 1923 Weimar inflation. They were still teenagers. So. Um, uh, no, I never, I never spoke to them about that specific experience. I think part of the reason is simply that I think uh, for that generation, for that generation after the inflation, which was horrific and decimated the German middle class, then obviously after that came you know, fascism and you know the Nazi regime, and then the Second World War. And I think looking back on sort of their own experiences, I think that generation spoke much more about the war and the years after the war. Uh, the years after the war were also full of hardship. And then obviously the rebuilding of Germany. So, so, so I think if the generation spoke to their children and grandchildren about their own experiences, I think it was more related to the war years and the inflation years. Having said that, I think again, uh, there's not ever only just one cause for an historic event, but I do think clearly the 1923 hyperinflation in Germany played a key role in, you know, preparing the ground politically and uh, culturally, if you like, for Nazism and, and fascism because it decimated the middle class. Yeah, and that's what worries me is, is you know, if our currency do, does collapse and there's a lot of some kind of in inflationary pain or, you know, money loses its power it's, it's what happens after that that worries me what what people the, the worrying thing is that people instead of turning their back on their governments will turn on them to do more i think that's, that's i think that's a very very valid concern now my, my hope is that if paper money collapses or we go through a major currency crisis that hopefully people draw the right conclusions from this but there's also risk as you said they ask for strong government and then we get i don't know new forms of paper money i mean i think you could imagine governments imposing uh sort of only purely domestic currencies that can, there's no gonna, not going to be international exchange of money you know so you, you uh, lock down the economy and uh, I mean all these would be disastrous you know policies that are hinder that hinder wealth creation that that are enter prosperity and enter freedom and enter personal liberty so I, I think I think it will be a very different society but there is a risk that in the crisis people ask for a strong state and and uh, we even move into more 
totalitarian structures, uh, there is definitely clear. Have you followed the uh, the history of the inflation in the Austrio? Austri what do you call it? The Austro-Hungarian. The Austro-Hungarian Empire around about 1919 because it's quite similar to what's going on in the Euro today and that there were four or five countries in that empire that maybe should have been independent. You have Austria, Hungary, Yugoslavia. Um, was the Czech Republic? Czechoslovakia yes, yeah. part of that empire and they were all operating with one monetary union but maybe different levels of interest rates yeah. applied to different parts of that empire yeah i have not looked at it specifically for my book i heard people make that an uh, uh, you know analogy i uh, i mean i think in general sort of again speaking not as a, as an historian but as a monetary theorist i do think that um, uh, I, I have no problem with common currencies. You know, I don't think there's a problem with many different nations sharing the same monetary unit. Uh, in fact, I would not be an advocate or a defender of a gold standard. Uh, you know, if, if I had that view, if, if I thought that, that each nation needs its own money, I think the idea that each government or each you know sort of local political entity should be able to print its own money, impose it on its population, and then sort of inflate it or debase it according to need. Uh, I think that's sort of a fairly new idea, um, which which is more the result of sort of 20th century nationalism, I think, than than really sound economic thinking. Uh, there is there is no. Uh, well, let's put it this way: money is a medium of exchange. It should further economic cooperation, you know, voluntary exchange between you know uh, uh, human beings. Capital, capitalism doesn't stop at borders, you know, and, and human interaction and trading and selling and buying doesn't yeah. stop at borders. And I think increasingly in our nature, world, yeah, no, exactly. And then now increasingly we live in a globalized world where we, you know, produce things all over the world and buy things all over the world. The idea that sort of there is such a thing as the British economy or the Greek economy that somehow stops where the power of the Greek state stops or the power yeah. of the British state stops and that you know the, the, the government needs to be in charge of a local form of money that it can then manipulate to in, 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 according to the needs of that local economy that's increasingly a myth you know yeah. that, that you know, companies may be based in the UK and they produce in China and they sell in Europe so in a way you imagine think, how much easier it would be if there was just one metallic standard throughout the world absolutely there is a reason why throughout history the amount of times you buy something in another country and you make money on the trade and then you lose money on the forex yeah. forex isn't new wealth creation is it it's just it's no it's, exactly no i think i think the for, the foreign exchange markets are very impressive but they are a second best solution they're sort of like a like a like a, a, a stopgap well, there, it's just transference of wealth, though. Yeah. It's not. It's not building, creating yeah. new. No, no, it's not. But but it, it's obviously a means to because if I want to, if I generate income in the UK but want to spend it in the US, I cannot send my gold over as I could under a gold standard. Yeah. Uh, I would have to find somebody who does the opposite trade, who is happy yeah. to buy my sterling, and my yeah. pounds, and and give me US dollars. The foreign exchange market does nothing but help people do that, and with the bank as middleman. Yeah. And um, uh, but uh, but it's it's not a. It, I think it impresses a lot of. people. People, the foreign exchange market, and many people think it's the is the epitome of modern, you know, financial capitalism. But it's not really capitalistic. A capitalistic system, the, the free market, would over time develop global monetary units. Yeah. And if you imagine, you know, Chinese companies would not only produce and buy and sell and price in gold, 
but they would run their, 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 their express their balance sheets and their income statements in gold. Companies would, you know, buy and sell shares in one another and invest, you know, would have invest in other countries. All of that would be easier because you would not suffer the risk of, you know, uh, currency appreciation or depreciation. Uh, a lot of companies that, uh, yeah, produce and buy and sell uh, uh, have to buy very expensive hedging products to deal yeah. with currency risk and uh, a lot of that is it's just like, it's like a lawyer or an accountant it's just not not yeah. needed <laughs> just an, or but in a way this, this is all the result of all these governments yeah. around the world insisting that they want to have their own local paper money that they can produce at will let uh, me ask you central money. absolutely let me ask you one last question Detlev um what about the possibility that we just muddle through and arrive at some kind of global money standard? Uh, what do you mean by global money standard? Well, so, uh, global paper money? Or, uh, some global system of money that's accepted worldwide. I think that's inevitably what's going to happen, whether it's a government money or a, yeah. uh, or it's a free market okay, money. Yeah. But, you know, uh, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or whatever it is. But, I mean, we just might... I think that's where the money is going. Yes. Uh, but, you know, it might be 30 years away or, you know... You know but what, what about the possibility that, you know, paper money doesn't collapse and we just kind of muddle through to that? Uh, well, the... Uh, the problem I have... I mean, I, I, I could see a global money develop and I think... I think... I, I hope that it is again an apolitical form of money that is not under the control of any kind of politician and any kind of you know, nation or political party. So a global gold standard would again work or maybe Bitcoin or maybe there are other solutions that I can't even envision right now. So global money I'm a big fan of. Now whether we muddle through paper money I think the problem is uh, what I argue in my book and what I strongly believe is that if you have a form of elastic money, a form money that is created in such a way that it, money is constantly expanding and new money is constantly being injected into the economy. That must create economic imbalances. So if paper money means that, as it does today, that it's a form of money that the central bank issues in such a way that it's constantly being debased, it's constantly inflated, so you constantly I issue more of it, it you must distort interest rates, you m it must lead to capital misallocations, you m must get business cycles. So it's unstable. And so the only way you could stop this is obviously if you make this form of money fairly inelastic. So you could argue, what if the central bank wouldn't manage your inflation or the unemployment rate or all these other things that modern central bankers look at, but if the central bank would just keep a fixed supply of money. At that stage, uh, it, they would basically mimic a gold standard. You know, because yeah. the gold standard is I mean, it's not entirely you can't, you, you can't do that because private money, because you know, a lot of money gets created through private banks and lending and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and there is a big debate out there which uh, you know, is very interesting about like, to what extent should you even restrict you know, private banks from issuing you know, money substitutes or yeah. near monies, you know, fiduciary media as it was called, uh, so, so like, like bank loans, uh, so, so bank deposit or other forms of near money that are often can often be converted in, into, into money proper, into state paper money or gold or whatever is, is the monetary base. But uh, um, so should, should, should we even restrict the ability of private financial institutions to issuing sort of monetary substitutes? My personal view is it's impossible to do this, and I, I don't think it should be done. No, so there will I'm always saying be. the state can't, they can't 
limit the, the amount of money in circulation because of the fact that money gets created through these private bank yes. substitutes. But I, I do think that the key problem with the present system, my, in, in, in my view, is the very high elasticity of money. The fact that not only of financial institutions able to, to issue money. They have the backing, the full backing of the central bank behind this. Banks and central banks encourage yeah. uh, banks to issue more money and create more money. Uh, and central banks do this by providing a lender of last resort function to the banking system. You know, banks can now create much more deposit money. They can lower their reserve ratios much more than they ever could do this before simply because they know they have the backing of a central bank. And that central bank can create bank reserves, you know, base money, the, the raw material of the banking business without limit. And, uh, and now the banks all know, also know that the central banks will not allow banks to go under. So in, in a way, the, the, ex the expansion of money, the extension of bank balance sheets can now be extended to a degree that has never been possible uh, under something like a gold standard. I'm not arguing, I mean, in, you could operate a capitalist economy even with a completely inelastic and fixed supply of money. There is no, yes, there would be slight secular deflation, there would not be a problem, you could do this. We will probably never have this because somebody will always create monetary substitutes and near money. Somebody will manage to issue financial instruments that behave like money or are being used like money. And that process will always make the money supply somewhat elastic. My issue with the present system is today we have a hyper-elastic monetary system in which at the basis of it is not something that is outside the control of central banks but that is completely under the control of central banks and that can be created without limit. And that sets a very unstable foundation of the monetary system. That, that is the key problem. So if paper money always means that that is a system we're going to have, I think that is a system that is inherently unstable and suboptimal. Uh, and so if you fix the key problem with it, which is the high elasticity, if you, if you stop central banks expanding the monetary base, you may as well go back to a gold standard. You know, why not have the, the, a beautiful international system than, yeah. than a patchwork of local fiat monies? Very good. Detlev, thank you very much indeed. As we close, why don't you give out your website? Uh, my website is papermoneycollapse.com. And you put up blogs every couple of weeks on there, and I must say they're excellent. Is that right every couple of weeks, or is it more frequent than well, that? Well, there's not a specific pattern. I, t I try to publish something once a week, but sometimes it's, it's even two weeks before I write something new. Okay, and the book is? The book is Paper Money Collapse, The Folly of Elastic Money and the Coming Monetary Breakdown by uh, John Wiley and Sons. Published by John Wiley and Sons and available at Amazon and we'll put a link up and everything else. Great. Detlev Schlichter, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dominic. Subscribe to the Gold Money newsletter at www.goldmoney.com to receive email updates on new articles, videos and iTunes podcasts from our gold research section.